This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by the new book Spaceman by Mike Massimino. Neil deGrasse Tyson writes, Every generation of astronauts needs a storyteller, a person with wit, humor, and passion who has lived our collective dreams of space exploration and returned to tell us all about it. Mike Massimino is that person, he's that astronaut, and this is his story. Learn more at MikeMassimino.com. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 224 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new anthology, The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2016, and I'm joined by two guests. So, first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's edited many anthologies, including the recent books The Ant Has Come, Loosed Upon the World, and Operation Arcana, and he's also the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. So, John, welcome back. Always good to be here. And also joining us today is Karen Joy Fowler. She's the author of seven novels, including Sister Noon, Wit's End, and We Are Completely Beside Ourselves, and five short story collections, including Artificial Things, Black Glass, and What I Didn't See, and other stories. Her work has received the Nebula Award, the World Fantasy Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the Penn Faulkner Award, and has been shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Her novel, The Jane Austen Book Club, was adapted into a feature film, and she's also the guest editor for The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2016. So, Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And today's show is brought to you by Spaceman, the new memoir by NASA astronaut Mike Massimino. And here's Mike's bio. It says, Mike Massimino served as a NASA astronaut from 1996 to 2014. A veteran of two space flights to the Hubble Space Telescope, Mike and his crew set team records for spacewalking time, and he became the first person to tweet from space. He's played himself on the CBS sitcom The Big Bang Theory, was featured in the IMAX film Hubble 3D, and has appeared on talk shows such as The Late Show with David Letterman and Good Morning America. And here's a bit more about the book. It says, In the blue-collar town where Mike grew up, going to college was a big deal, and going to space was unthinkable. He was six foot three, afraid of heights, and, he'll be the first to tell you, never the best athlete or the smartest kid in the class. Even after he propelled himself through Columbia and MIT, earning multiple degrees including a PhD, Massimino was rejected twice by NASA. On the third try, he made it to the final round of astronaut selection, only to be told that his poor eyesight meant he'd never make the cut. But he didn't let that stop him. Mike actually trained his eyes to pass the test. Mike speaks reverently about his time in space, describing the fascinating complexity and paralyzing anxiety of making emergency repairs to the Hubble. How do you remove 111 tiny screws from a machine that was never designed to be fixed, in space, all while worrying that you're about to slip up and inadvertently ruin humankind's chance to discover life on other planets? The book has received a starred review from Kirkus, and physicist Brian Green writes, Massimino's incredible journeys, filled with grit, courage, suspense, and thrills, are told with such candor and delight that for a brief moment I felt that I'd finally made it to space too. Read this book and be inspired to reach for the impossible. So the book is called Spaceman, an astronaut's unlikely journey to discover the secrets of the universe, and you can learn more at MikeMassimino.com. And now let's get to our panel. Okay, and so we previously discussed the first volume of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy back in episode 177, so if you're curious about how the series got started, you should definitely go check that out. 
And now I just want to start off with John and have you just tell us a bit about the response to that first book. Just what sort of an impact would you say that it's had? Uh, well, we got a lot of great reviews for it, and uh, I've heard from a lot of different uh, individual readers uh, over the over the course of the year since it came out, uh, who really uh, thought it was great and it was like something that they were really hungering for. Um, most of them, I think, have been um, just sort of general science fiction fantasy readers. I, I I don't know that a lot of the people that I've run into have been uh, sort of the non-genre readers that we're hoping to lure in, uh, but I'm hoping, of course, that a lot of them have found the book and have loved it as well. Um, I haven't noticed that that, actually, that we've actually made that huge of an impact yet overall. I think that's going to sort of accrue over time as, as more and more volumes come out because um, I think the different assortment of writers featured in each book and the different uh, guest editors is going to help us reach different audiences each time. Uh, but so far, um, I would kind of say that I feel like the genre community hasn't fully embraced it yet. Like, um I, I kind of I kind of thought that uh, people would be like super excited about it when it when it came out and and you know uh, and and the sales would, would be reflective of that but uh, so far um, it's it's sold well enough but um, you know it hasn't set the world on fire or anything so I'm I'm hoping that we'll continue to build traction as the series uh, continues on right so I think it'll probably take two or three volumes right before you've established science fiction's preeminence in the literary world <laughs> yeah probably yeah. Yeah, and I mean, of course, and of course, one of the problems with science fiction and fantasy in terms of doing a best of the year volume is that there are several other best of the year volumes, and a, a new one even just came out like the same year that uh, the that the first Best American came out. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of competition for best of the year volumes in the genre. Yeah. Well, you say in your intro that more than one reader review seemed displeased with the proportions of science fiction and fantasy in the 2015 volume. Talk about what kind of what kind of grousing did you did you hear? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, this is like on Amazon reviews and stuff like that, like, you know, various am amateur reviews. And, um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, a bunch of people complained that there was either too much science fiction or too much fantasy, uh, in the book. Uh, but then they don't know, they didn't always agree, uh, which was which. And some of them said that it was all science fiction and they complained about that. And some of them said it was all fantasy and complained about that. So it's just like, it's all very strange how, uh, how, how readers, uh, approach a text and, and, and they have their different interpretations of like what, science fiction is or what fantasy is um you know because of that kind of thing i i felt the need to like again re like reiterate in the introduction what i you know like i felt like what the definitions of the two genres are to try to help set some guideposts for people who maybe are coming to the the book without having that background in science fiction or fantasy um that uh like you know like you know that they will, we all have um but uh yeah, you know, it's just, it's always really interesting to see that kind of review. Um, and I, it wouldn't bother me as much if they weren't like, you know, mad about it <laughs> because of that. Like if, like if they read the book and they're like, oh, well, I was expecting an equal proportion of science fiction and fantasy, but this was all fantasy and, but I loved it. Like if they loved it, it's like, okay, well, I mean, they're wrong about it being, you know, I mean, it's like we very explicitly made it half and half, uh, cause I wanted each genre to be equally represented in the book. Um, but uh, yeah, no. But so they 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 make that complaint, and then they and then they just grouse about it. So and it's like it feels and it makes it seem like it ruined the book for them because like they didn't uh, didn't get enough of both genres. But um, I'd love to actually be able to hear more from people like that to see like well what well what do you think you know the genre boundaries are like you know what do you think actually makes a science fiction story like I'd love to hear like them explain like how some of those stories in that first volume were science fiction when I said they were fantasy, you know what I mean? So um, it would be really interesting to have a conversation like that. Unfortunately, you know, can't really engage with, uh, with reviews uh, online. Uh, that's a path to destruction. <laughs> well, yeah. So if anyone's listening to this right now who uh, read the book and wants to 
fill John in on what you think science fiction and fantasy are. It's uh, johnjosephadams at gmail.com. So, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, thanks. So go get him. Um, but so, uh, Karen, so just tell us a bit, a bit about how did you get involved with this project? Well, I got involved when John invited me to, to be the guest editor. Um, I was uh, pretty excited by the first volume myself and um, pretty excited about uh, playing a role in the second volume. Yeah, so, so tell us a little bit about like what was the process like for you, uh, selecting the stories and putting the book together and stuff like that? I feel that John really did the heavy lifting. As he <laughs> he read, as far as I can see, just about everything um, and then winnowed it down considerably so that my job was much easier. I think, uh, was it 80 stories, John, that you passed yeah. on? Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I read 80 stories, but I read 80 stories that John had already liked. So um, everything I read was pretty good. Uh-huh. And so did you have, what, like, how did you go about selecting one story versus another for the book? Of course, um, in the end, this just comes down to personal taste. I felt that there were a lot of stories in the final 80 that that I liked a lot. There were a lot doing something interesting. There were a lot of voices that I found compelling. And in the end, in, in many ways, the main distinction I found myself making involved the endings of the stories. So there would be stories that I liked equally until I got to the end, and then I would just feel that more than the other, one of them stuck the landing somehow, took took me somewhere I didn't expect to go, left me with things vibrating in my brain, um, just uh, something. Often it, it came down to the endings that I felt were the most interesting and the most successful. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also wrote an introduction for this book that I thought was really interesting. And you say that uh, I didn't start reading science fiction until college, taunted into it by the man I later married. I was wondering if you could tell us what that story is. <laughs> I can. Um, we uh, we had had just a couple of dates, and he said, sort of as I remember it, uh, memory being, of course, extremely unreliable in these matters, kind of out of the blue, he said there were a lot of things he liked about me, and he listed some of them. I don't remember what they were. (laughs) (laughs) What I remember is the one thing he said he didn't like about me. And the one thing he didn't like about me, he said, was that he could tell, even though we had never had a single conversation on this subject, that I was the kind of uh, snotty reader who thought she didn't like science fiction, even though she had never read any. And I was pretty outraged by this <laughs> statement, partly because of its accuracy. But, um, <laughs> I, I did not want to admit to that, so um, I told him he was quite mistaken, that I read a lot of science fiction, that I loved science fiction, and then between that conversation and our next date, I went to the bookstore and said, "Hand me some, get me some science fiction. <laughs> I need some science fiction. And the the clerks were very excited, and um, my recollection is that they handed me Dune and uh, The Voyage of the Space Beagle and uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. Um, And I noted that these were all by men, and so with much enthusiasm. 
they pulled out um, the left hand of darkness for me as well. Um, and, you know, by the time the third date came around, I was so caught up in those books, I could barely make time to see him again. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you say in the intro that the books like The Left Hand of Darkness almost reconfigured your brain. I think that that book in particular has, has did have that effect on a great many people about my age that um, sort of as a as a. In, in many ways, you know, one of them was just because this was such a different way to think about gender. I'd never thought of books as this sort of thought experiment that you could run and, and change what was familiar to you into something more imaginative. Um, and, and that that would then, of course, cast back on the world that you lived in, in interesting ways. So that book just, you know, raised a, a lot of questions about how gender operates in the world, uh, how it could operate in the world, how it might operate in a different world, um, in the context of a story that I found extremely moving and compelling, the, the section towards the end where the two main characters are uh, trekking across the ice together, I still think of as one of the most beautiful um, set of scenes in any book I've ever read. Yeah, and you also, in the introduction, you talk about sort of crashing this literature course at Stanford. Could you tell us more about that? Well, you know, once I started thinking about science fiction, I, I got pretty, uh, pretty fanatical about it. And I was um, home for the summer. I, I went to school at Berkeley, but I lived in Palo Alto. My parents lived in Palo Alto. And a friend of mine said that he was taking a fabulous science fiction class from H. Bruce Franklin over at Stanford, and that it was quite a large class, and nobody would notice if I just walked in. So he said I should join it. And that's what I did. Right. It sounds like it was a very political class. It was during the Vietnam War. Do I have it? It was right? during the Vietnam War, yes. It was very political. H. Bruce Franklin was fending off all sorts of threats um, over his radicalism. Um, my, the books that I primarily remember from the class were the Russians, whom I had never, I had never read before. Uh, we read, um, We and the, um, uh, well, what's it called? The Picnic Book. Um, you know, the Brothers. The ro Roadside Picnic by the Brothers. Roadside Trigotsky. Picnic. Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. Um, and, um, you know, it was not an easy class, but uh, it was it was a pretty fabulous class, and I felt guilty every second because everybody else in the class had paid tuition to take it, and I had not. <laughs> um, okay, but so so you like you fell in love with all these books, and you thought that they were great. But you actually say in the introduction that you think that the golden age of the fantasy and science fiction short story is just about exactly now. It took me a lot longer to locate the short story market uh and uh, because i think it's you know because it's in the magazines it's or maybe just because those original clerks in that original bookstore never handed me collections of short stories i i had no sense of what a, a lively and um 
contentious little world the science fiction short story community is. But but again, you know, once once I got there, I loved it, and I I I love the way stories refer to other stories. It it seems like a a conversation that's going on uh, that takes place completely in these fictional realms. Um, I think it's easier to accomplish a really um, shock to the reader in the short form than it is uh, over the course of a novel. And yeah, I, you know, I think the people that we have currently writing short stories, um, I would put them up against anybody, anytime, anywhere. Do you agree with that, John? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, right now, there's probably more places to publish short stories than there has been in in a really long time. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if 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 it's like of all time, but I mean, if you compare the 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 landscape now to like the heyday of short fiction when like in the fifties or whenever it was, whenever the most uh, magazines were out there, uh, I think it's pretty comparable. And of course, uh, now a lot of it is online for uh, online for free to read. So you you're having a lot of readers who are reading short fiction that they wouldn't otherwise because uh, um, you know because you know there's no barrier to entry, there's no cost of entry, um, and. Uh, it's really interesting because, because of that, uh, landscape with there being so many different, uh, editorial voices out there, uh, it, it's making a really rich, uh, um, it's making a really rich landscape of, of writers because, uh, when you have all those different editorial, uh, uh tastes out there, then it, it opens up the doors to all, so many different types of stories to be published. And because of that variety out there right now, I think that's, uh, making it all, uh, just, a really rich harvest for, for all of us. Um, and, uh, one of the things that I've been loving about, uh, being the series editor is having the responsibility of having to go out and try to read as much as I can all over the genre from the big magazines to the small magazines. Um, and it's always really great to find something really terrific in like one of these little tiny magazines that's like in, the, in this little, you know, tucked out of the way place, uh, that most people probably wouldn't have even, um, noticed. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really interesting to discover that like really good materials even published uh, in things like that, which, you know, like a, a lot of these small magazines, like they don't really publish, uh, they don't really, I'm sorry, they don't really pay much, um, if anything. So, uh, it's, it's always really interesting to find good material in such markets. Um, but the fact that those, all those things exist, I think is what's making it like this golden age. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've said that you read about 5,000 stories or so for one of these books yeah. and then narrow it down to 80. Do you have any sort of... Mm -hmm. Uh, like rules or approach to winnow it down so dramatically from 5,000 to 80? Uh, not really. I mean, it's like um, anybody who has listened to the show before has heard us talk about the slush pile, you know, where you, it's all the unsolicited submissions that a magazine editor gets. Um, and when you're reading through a slush pile of unpublished material, it's like, you know, you get, you get a sense like right away of whether a story is going to work for you or not. And like you can, you can read just a couple pages or a couple paragraphs even sometimes, depending on what the level of the writer is. And you can just know that it's not for you. Um, and so the same thing happens when you're doing something like Best American, because even though this material is published, you can have widely different tastes, uh, between editors. And so like, for instance, there are certain editors I know that like, you know, although a lot of people like what they publish, I don't tend to like them that much. And so I, I know that like when I'm approaching those, um, I can expect a certain type of story, you know, um, 
which is not to say that I don't give those stories equal consideration. I do. But when I go to start to read any story, um, I basically think of it um, just like a slush pile, even though it's all published material, because it's like I got and because the thing is, it's like uh, it's like you're shifting the rating scale. So like on a, with a slush pile, um, you know, anything that's like really good, like I'm going to read the whole thing because like maybe I want to publish it. But then for Best American, it doesn't have to, it, does, it has to be more than just really good. It has to be like fantastic. So, you know, I have to love it. I have to like love it like hardcore, like right from the beginning, you know, and it's like if I'm if I start reading the story and I'm like and I'm not like super in love with it right away, it's like, I mean, I might as well just cast it aside because I mean, the thing is, I got to read through so many different stories. If I'm going to narrow it down to the 80 best, it's like, I mean, only only um that's like that's sort of the first bar for entry is that like, man, I got to love it right away. Um, so, so that's one of the ways I, 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 uh, you know, sort of discard a bunch of the stories. Um, and then otherwise, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, like Karen was saying, it's, it's all about personal taste. Um, uh, in the case, in my case, I, I try to keep in mind who the guest editor is. If, uh, once I know who it is, uh, we, we usually line them up pretty late in the process. Um, so I can try to think like, oh, like, will the guest editor like this one? Like, maybe, like if I'm, if I'm on the fence about which, story to include in my top 80 versus another. Um, but uh, that doesn't play that much of a factor, but um, that's one of the things that could. Um, and then, of course, we have all these uh, all these rules for what material is eligible for Best American. You know, it has to be uh, an American or Canadian publication. The author has to be Canadian, American or Canadian, or they have to live here. Um, you know, there's all these different rules. Uh, and so that eliminates a lot of them, a lot of the stories from consideration as well. But um, but I don't even count those in the, in you know, in my tally of like, like my estimate of 5,000. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you were telling me, John, that two of the stories that you liked in particular out of this book were uh, The Heat of Us and Planet Lion. Could you just sort of describe those stories and say why why you liked them so much? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so The Heat of Us by Sam J. Miller is one of the stories I really loved. Uh, I thought it was it was actually probably my favorite story that I read all year. Um, and it was something that I was like really jealous that I didn't get to publish first because, uh, you know, Sam, Sam Miller is one of my uh, authors that I published a lot in Lightspeed. Um, on the other hand, I, I can't fill up Best American with all Lightspeed stories. Mm-hmm. So it's nice when something I love appears somewhere else, you know. Um, but uh, it's a story that reimagines the Stonewall Uprising and there's like supernatural elements to it and everything. But um, it's just like really full of all this great emotion and it's really brutal. It's got a lot of uh, like really like... Um, just emotional scenes in there. And, and it's just written in this, uh, really like, uh, passionate, fiery way that, um, so, that so I just, to speak. Uh, yeah, right. Right. Um, that, that I just really, really loved. And, um, and yeah, it was just one of those where I read it and I was just like, I, I was just like furiously turning the pages, uh, as I was uh, blowing through it. And, um, and I just like, I, I knew it was one of those that was like, Oh, well, obviously this is going into my top 80, you know? Um, and I was really glad that Karen liked it as well, obviously. So, um, and then the other story was Planet Lion by, uh, Catherine M. Valente. Um, and so that one was really interesting too. Um, I, that was again, like, I really loved the language in that. And, um, uh, it was just so strange. And it's, it's like a, it's like about a, um, about, about this alien planet and, um, everything about it is just so, uh, unusual. Like, I felt like I've never read a story like that before. And it's like, I mean, obviously you've read a lot of stories about like, you know, alien planets and everything, but, uh, but this one, um, just, uh, yeah, it's just, it just blew my mind. And, um, uh, I, I do kind of wish that it was called, uh, one lion called Yttrium, uh, which is like one of the, it's like, there's this, there's this like refrain throughout the story that's repeated over and over. And I, I just like, there's something about, uh, the way, uh, she constructed the language in this story that made me really uh, love it. 
Yeah, yeah. And so, so the premise of the story basically is that there is a human warship and it comes to this alien planet and the planet is inhabited by these kind of green lion aliens who are telepathic and they start absorbing the personalities and memories and things of the humans uh, that they come in contact with. And it's very, yeah, it's very like the imagery in it is very memorable and it's just a very like vivid story. And yeah, it, 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 was, it is one that really sticks in your head. It has, uh, the the prose has a particularly um, kind of infectious rhythm. So both John and I were agreeing that once we put that story down, we found for, you know, a couple of hours that we were thinking to ourselves and uh, in that rhythm, that, hmm. that it was... <laughs> Uh, it, it was hard to shake it off and go back to a normal kind of tone of voice. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how about you, Karen? Are there any stories that you want to mention just to give people a, a flavor of what kind of stories they can look forward to in this book? You know, I really and truly loved them all. And, and I loved, uh, you know, several that I couldn't put in the book as well. So um, it is hard for me to, to you know, to favor one over another in any way. But um, I will say um, something about The Great Silence, um, mm. which, which uh, is by Ted Chang, among others. And, um, I, you know, the, because I have been involved uh, in the research for my most recent novel in language and in animal issues and animal theory, uh, that story hit me particularly powerfully. Uh, I, I, I really was the perfect reader for it. I had, I had prepped for about five years <laughs> to read that story. And so when <laughs> the time came, um, I thought it was pretty fantastic. Um, well, let me just say about the story, the story of the Great Silence, because that was one of my favorites as well. And it's told from the point of view of a parrot who's kind of talking to humanity and wondering why are we so obsessed with SETI and sending signals out into space looking for aliens who could talk back to us when there are all these animals on Earth, like parrots, who are capable of communication and we don't seem terribly bothered as a civilization with letting them go extinct. And it's just drawing that att your attention. So yeah, if we were to discover something comparable to parrots on uh, Europa or something, it would be the biggest thing in, you can imagine. But people really take all these animals that we share the planet with for granted. Um, I, you know, I also really, really love the game of smash and recovery by Kelly Link. Uh, I, I think it's a, a typical Lake story in that it's, um, full of surprises, uh, sort of moment by moment, line by line, but also then in the twists and turns the, the plot takes. I think you're, you're, you're set up to believe that there's a brother and a sister abandoned on a, a planet with a kind of warehouse full of strange artifacts. Um, and then as you go through the story, realize that's not really the situation at all. Mm -hmm. uh, how about John? Are there any, like maybe one or two more stories you want to uh, mention to give people a flavor uh, of the ideas? Uh, sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, one story that I was really excited about was uh, the Dunyazat by Salman Rusty. I'm not sure if that's actually how you say that word, but, um, uh, that was published in the New Yorker, but, 
Uh, so it's always cool when we find something in, in something like The New Yorker, which doesn't publish a lot of genre fiction, but of course, it's also some in Rushdie. So it's like, that was really cool. Um, and I was, I was glad that we were able to get the, uh, the story because I wasn't sure, you know, sometimes when you have like big literary writers like this, uh, they don't necessarily want to be put in a book that's labeled as science fiction or fantasy. Um, but, uh, that's about, uh, that's a, uh, that's a, like, sort of a romance story about, uh, a djinn disguised as a young woman who falls in love with this, uh, like, real historical philosopher who, um, I think uh Salman Rushdie said that it's it's like actually like a distant like ancestor of his or something because it's like the name the name of the person is Ibden Rushdie and it's like R R U S R U S H D um which is not quite how Salman Rushdie's last name is spelled but it's sort of a a version of it. Yeah, I think if I read the author's note right, he his father or grandfather or something changed their family name in honor of that mm-hmm. character. Oh, okay, that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that, that story was really great. I loved, uh, that was again, another one that was just like really just wonderfully written. Um, and, uh, so it's like really the prose that, uh, spoke to me most on that one. Um, and then, uh, sort of on a similar note, also interesting facts by Adam Johnson. Uh, that one was from Harper's. Um, and again, you know, a big literary writer, uh, who doesn't, you know, isn't typically thought of as a science fiction, a fantasy person, although, uh, uh, both of them have actually written, uh, other works that are definitely, you know, of the genre, um, even if they don't get labeled that way. Uh, and, uh, so that one's, uh, sort of this ghost story about, uh, a woman who, um, uh, who has like this terminal cancer diagnosis and, uh, and she sort of starts to feel like a ghost. Uh, but then it's like, sort of as you're reading the story, it's like, well, is she a ghost or is she, you know, does she just feel like one? Um, and so, uh, I thought that one was really well done and interesting as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, so those are a couple other ones. Um, you know, I, I was also really, uh, pleased with this Liz Zamesca story from Tin House. It's called The Mushroom Queen. Um, it's about, uh, this, like, weird fungus that starts to take over this, uh, this, you know, this woman's life. Um, and, uh, so I, I thought that one was, again, really interesting. And it was like, it, I like barely found that one. So I was also really pleased to have discovered it in time that I didn't, uh, that I didn't discover it too late. Cause, uh, it was like one of those things where, um, I had, someone at Tin House was sending me some stories and, and, uh, they sent it to me at the last minute, right before I, you know, I was sort of had my cutoff point. So I was glad that happened. Yeah. I love that story. Let me just, uh, add one more, which is Headshot by Julian Mortimer Smith. I think just in terms of the, um, uh, bravado of the conception, uh, was a really memorable story, beautifully accomplished, but also, um, just gives me that that shock that I was talking about that science fiction can deliver, and that's a kind of combination of um, of the war on terror and social media, and how those two things might interact in the future. Um, it's a uh, it, it's just uh, amazing, I think, amazingly imaginative. Yeah, so I, I also really love that one. So the premise basically is that soldiers in the future have to get approved in real time by what they call a quorum of, of voters. So average citizens are kind of following them on social media, and the soldier has to request permission to take the shot, and then average citizens sitting at home on their computers have to vote to approve that. And yeah, I thought that was a really interesting idea, and it really makes you think, and I, I've never seen that idea before. So yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I also noticed that uh, Sophia Samatar had two stories in volume one, and so mm-hmm. I was very pleased to discover that she was back for us in volume two, as I think she's she's a real superstar in my in my estimation. 
and, and oh, the absolutely. Story, the story that she gave us, Meet Me in the Realm, was just lovely. Just from from first word to last word, I thought pitch perfect and very uh, very melancholy, but um, uh, just very resonant. Yeah, so actually, uh, so, so Sophia and Sophia, Kelly Link, and Sam J. Miller are the only three people who have stories in both volumes. Uh, so I thought, I thought that was worth, uh, mentioning, uh, cause I, I mean, I think, I think it's really a cool honor, I guess, for them to have managed to do that, to have stories in both volumes, cause not only did you have to please me, but then you had to please the different guest editor in each book. Um, and, uh, so I thought that was cool, but I, I also like that it's only three, like it's not too much overlap, you know, so that you can have, um, so we still have a nice diversity of, uh, you know, authors being represented in the book. Yeah, I will say also that, um, Sam Miller had uh, another couple stories just this year, all, uh, which could have easily made the book as well. I think he, he's pretty sensational too. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. Yeah. I was just going to mention it. When you read all these stories together, there are some interesting synchronicities that pop up. I don't know if you guys noticed. So in the Salman Rushdie story and in this Mushroom Queen story, both of them, you can identify the non-human character from a lack of earlobes. I thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> I thing. didn't notice that. <laughs> and then, you know, like the Great Silence you mentioned with the parrot and then the Mushroom Queen. The, in the author's note, the, um, the author says, my story asks the question, are we smart enough to know how smart fungi are? And I thought it was just interesting that, you know, multiple stories are exploring parrots versus fungi or whatever, or, you know, are they smarter than we appreciate? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, John, did you interact at all with Salman Rushdie as part of putting this book together? Uh, no, no, it, uh, it was, uh, just his agent. I, I was, you know, I emailed his agent, uh, to get the permission and then we actually had to get it from, uh, from the publisher from Random House, I think, um, because, uh, this story was first published in the New Yorker, but then he later, um, made it part of his novel, uh, that came out, uh, last year, I think. Um, and, uh, I don't remember the date. I don't remember the name of it, but it's like, it's like a thousand and one nights spelled out in different parlance, like in days and months. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. The, t- the title of the book, it's, it's a certain number of, uh, right. years, months and days. I don't remember exactly, but it adds up to a thousand and one nights. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, uh, so this, this story became part of that. And so, uh, because of that, Random House, uh, I believe it was, uh, they had the rights to the story. And so, uh, so, uh, and Houghton Mifflin actually handles all of the permissions for things, but I, I had to, I had to reach out to, to like let people know that their story was selected and such. And, um, but, uh, yeah, with Salmon Rusty, I, I never heard from him directly. Um, Adam Johnson, I did, um, who was the other one who I, I wasn't sure that I would. Everybody else, it was like, I think, uh, I think it was everybody else I, I knew already or, or suspected I'd be able to get in touch with them. Um, I guess Liz Zemetska, I hadn't known before that, before this. Um, but, uh, or, or Dexter Palmer, actually. Uh, but I, but I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I guess they weren't like, they weren't like these huge, like literary icons that I thought were going to be untouchable, you know? So, um, uh, but, uh, Adam Johnson actually did get in touch directly. So that was cool. But, you know, Salman Rushdie, I did not though. Well, let me just reiterate my longstanding invitation to Salman Rushdie to come on this podcast anytime you want. <laughs> um, all right, cool, cool. So, um, so Karen, in your intro, you say, uh, could it be more clear that the tools of so-called literary realism are no longer up to the task of accurately depicting the world in which we live? Could you uh, talk about that? Oh, my God. Do I even have to say it? Uh, look at the presidential election we're living <laughs> through. It's, uh, 
it's it's a statement that is self-evident now on its face i think there is nothing real left in the real world <laughs> uh you also say i i may suspect that they never were but that's an argument for another time so i don't know i got time right now so uh <laughs> <laughs> so why do you well, think this that is, uh, this is just uh, you know i i may feel that we live in a particularly uh, irrational and um uh, hard to believe in sort of world. Um, but you know, it's the only world I've ever lived in. When I do historical research, when I'm writing historical stories or historical novels, what I tend to discover is that those times were pretty irrational and hard to believe in as well. So I don't, I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that the world that I know is, uh, harder to believe in than any other world. I feel that would that would uh would be a form of timism. Is that can I make that a word? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Privileging my own time over somebody else's. Um yeah, I want to say like some sort of chrono uh chauvinist chrono chauvinism or something like that. Yeah, that that <laughs> works. That works. Um, well, well God, God forbid that I should be accused of that. <laughs> um, well, you, it's interesting, Karen, because speaking of different worlds, you kind of started out in the fantasy and science fiction world and have, you know, made inroads then into the, the literary realism world. Could you just talk about what kind of what, what was that experience like, um, you know, going from one you know, realm into another? Uh, I think that. Um that it caused more problems for other people than it did for me that you know i just um have always tried to write the story i wanted to write at the time that i wanted to write it and um and not worried a whole lot about what you might call it i've always been extremely grateful that um I think the decision of determining what it is i write what you know what genre where where we're going to slot it um i feel is not really my problem and belongs to somebody else and along those lines i would add how grateful i am that john did made the decisions about what in the book uh in the stories that he passed on to me which ones were fantasy and which ones were <laughs> science fiction because i feel that i have a, a sort of good grasp on that in the abstract and then you put an actual story in front of me and it is not nearly as easy for me to to tell one from the mm -hmm. other often. So um, you know, my I know I know that there has been um a certain amount of chatter uh when I work inside the field of science fiction and sci and fantasy that that I'm not actually doing that, that I'm writing something else that doesn't belong and um and when I move outside, uh, I know that it has been problematic for my editor to determine, you know, which part of the bookstore I belong in and um, where my proper shelf is. So, again, you know, I, I, I can see that there are problems involved um, because uh, of where I live and uh, who I run around with. Um, just not something that I've given a whole lot of consideration to myself. 
Do you ever run into people face to face who who makes snide comments or anything, or is this mostly sort of internet <laughs> thing? Well, there's a lot of it on the internet for sure, but um, yeah, I, I mostly I don't know if you'd call it a snide comment, um, although it could be. But I, yeah, I frequently um, meet people who ask me if I think I write science fiction, and um, and I tend to try to determine based on where I am and how they phrase the question and what my assumptions about them are to try to give them the answer that will irritate them the most. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, uh, I mean, you know, speaking of the two worlds that sort of Karen has uh, inhabited in the literary sphere, uh, I mean, that's obviously one of the reasons that uh, she seemed perfect for uh, to be guest editor this year, um, you know, because, you know, we want to try to reach out to that, liter that literary readership to try to get them to convince them to read science fiction and fantasy, give it a shot. Um, and uh, but then at the same time, we also want the genre readers to know that that their book, you know, that they're they're this book that's proclaiming the best of the year uh, is in good hands. And, and, and so Karen's great uh, because she satisfies both of those, uh, you know, requirements like fantastically because like obviously she's very well respected in the literary world. And then uh, in science fiction, it's like, well, she came from here and it's like, you know, she, and she still works with the Clarion foundation. And, you know, so it's like, uh, she, I mean, she's got sufficient credibility in both camps uh, to make her a perfect, uh, you know, selection. Um, and, uh, and I, and I really enjoyed, uh, the whole process. Like, uh, I mean, you never know, uh, when you go into any kind of collaboration, what it's going to end up like, but, um, you know, it seemed like, uh, we had really, uh, really good similar tastes, you know, it's like we didn't have any clashes or anything. And so, um, yeah, I was, I, was, I thought it worked out great. I thought so too. I know there were, there was at least one story that I think you, would have liked me to include mm -hmm. and possibly more than one, but I've got one in mind in particular, but in general, mm -hmm. we were, we were pretty much in agreement. Yeah. And I mean, that's always going to happen. I think where, uh, you know, like I'll, I'll fixate on some favorite and, uh, doesn't necessarily resonate for the guest editor. So, uh, but I mean, I think that's fine. Um, you know, Oh, like, like I said, a lot of my favorites did end up in here on the, on the top 10 or up on the top 20. So I, I mean, I can't complain. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, the thing is, it's like, uh, I also have Lightspeed and Nightmare, so if, if, uh, if something doesn't make it into Best American, I can always end up reprinting it in one of them and, uh, still, you know, still put my stamp on it. Absolutely. And so you should. <laughs> so, Karen, so you also say in your intro that the future of warfare was by far the most common theme, both in the stories I chose and in the ones I wished, uh, wished for but could not take. Could you just talk about how are, how is warfare kind of, echoing through fantasy and science fiction right now? I I guess, you know, I'll I'll start that answer by talking about something that surprised me, which was that I thought um I thought the kind of current uh war on terror would be more prominent. Uh and yet what I felt that I found more often was a uh, an older version of war, uh, more of a you know, less of a uh, lone wolf actors, le less incidents, and um, and more one army against another army. Um, which I guess I I'm saying that's old because I so wish it would go out of style. <laughs> I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to be done with both of them. But um, uh, you know, so that th that's what I found more often was uh, 
soldiers and stories about soldiers. And so why do you think that warfare is so on people's minds right now? You know, I would have to see if it had ever been off people's minds. Hmm. Uh, you know, I wonder if there are years in which it does not dominate. Uh, one of the things that disturbs me is that uh, that it is such a par powerful narrative, and it's a narrative that people really respond to, that has a, a, a great hold on us. So, you know, even when we, um, in popular culture, when we go out into space, it's still Star Wars. Um, you know, it's, it's still the battles that we're looking at. And, the, um, and, um, I, you know, I don't think it's a helpful narrative. I don't think it's a, it's a narrative that, um, it's it's uh, again you know i did all this research to write my most recent novel so um it looks to me more like a sort of a, a primate narrative uh, hmm. i would like to evolve past it but um but it does you know it's it's clearly something that has enormous power the 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 potential for um moments of heroism in the midst of horror uh, is something that seems to be kind of evergreen in its appeal for us to us yeah so i mean how about john did you, was the warfare was that something that really stood out to you or were there other themes that you noticed in all the stories you were reading um i hadn't picked up on the warfare thing i think probably because as uh, karen sort of wondered like I, I don't know that it ever is not on on the mind of writers um it seems like that's just sort of a thing in the genre that you see pretty much all the time um at least as far as i can remember um and you know there's always a good amount of stories that deal with it in some fashion or another um and you know i was a judge for the national book award uh last year and it's like and same thing happens in in that and like in that field as well and and like so so much was focused on it that it was kind of surprising for young adult literature but um you know i think it's just something that's like inherent to humanity that we've had to deal, deal with so many wars over the years. And there's always some war going on somewhere or another in the world. And, um, that, that I think it's just sort of something that we can't avoid, but to write about because it is such a fraught experience, you know, for anyone who's touched by it. Um, and, uh, as a writer, if you're, if you're grasping around for some sort of conflict, obviously there's all this inherent conflict built into anything to do with war. Um, but uh, let's see. Otherwise, um, I'm not sure that uh, any other uh, huge themes like stood out to me as like being particularly common. Um, unfortunately, it's like, of course, we're doing this now uh, after I've already spent the whole year reading, you know, thousands of other stories that were published in 2016 and also reading a bunch of novels now. So it's like this, the, 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 the 80 stories that we ended up <laughs> with on the, on the long list are not as fresh in my mind as they, as they might've been. Um, but uh yeah, I mean, nothing Nothing really jumps out at me um, as a, a pervading theme otherwise. All right, well, let us know, John, if you think of, like, there were a lot of stories about ferrets or something this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Karen, you also said that another theme that you had noticed was where and when does our empathy run out? Could you talk about that? Wow, give me a second. I don't remember saying that. Um, <laughs> wonder which stories I was thinking of in particular. Um. I mean, I, I could say, I mean, the the story that was really the standout story for me in this book was called Three Bodies at Mitanni by Seth Dickinson. I thought it was just a tremendous. Oh, of course, of course. that That's a story that is focused very much on that exact issue. 
So why don't you you talk about that one? Why did you like it so much? I just thought it did everything that I want a science fiction story to do. It had uh, it, like just conceptually, it was really interesting. There was an incredibly interesting ethical dilemma at the heart of it. Um, you know, the science was really interesting in terms of, uh, you know, Seth is a, he was in a PhD program in, um, psychology and he really knows a lot about the brain and psychology and how all that stuff works. And, uh, the, the characters I thought were very memorable and it just like, you know, like all, all the stories I read, I sort of underline things that I think are interesting that I might want to come back to later or that I might want to think about more. And with that story, I was just underlining it. Like pretty much the whole story is <laughs> underlined. I mean, it, it was just so many fascinating things going on in it. And then the the ending too was was you know, it was surprising yet inevitable. I mean, everything you want to the the ending of a story to be. I just I, I really thought it was one of my favorite stories that I've I've, I've ever read. Um, oh wow! And uh, no, I, I was just blown away by it. But but yeah, and, and it does speak very directly to what you were saying about. I guess I'll say the the premise of it is that there's a, a human spaceship and their job is to travel around to different colony worlds that have been seeded by seed ships and check in on these colony worlds and destroy them if they seem to potentially pose a threat to earth and so they find a world where it was supposed to be a habitable world but it turned out to to be a, a basically a uninhabitable world but the seed ship colonists have managed to survive on it by genetically engineering themselves not to have consciousness because consciousness is something, it's just like something you can't uh, afford to have in that dire of circumstances, because it's just sort of a distraction. And so they project that these genetically engineered people with no consciousness uh, are so capable and competitive that they're uh, guaranteed to subsume normal humans given enough time. And so the question is, are they justified in destroying them? what's the value of of life without consciousness uh and i don't just all sorts of really interesting ethical dilemmas like that come out of it um but i don't care is there anything you want to to add about that story um uh no i think um i i think it was the the ethical dilemma probably that appealed to me the most the the decision that the this threesome on the on the starship must make about about whether this this new evolutionary strategy is something that can be contained or um, has to be destroyed. Uh, I guess uh, you know I'm, I'm still thinking about the empathy issue um, again. This is this was something I was very focused on in my last novel, so I'm I'm prime to be noticing it but um i guess i would say that it's you know it's clearly there in the heat of us it's certainly there in the great silence this this idea of how far empathy can be extended um or will be extended uh um i'm trying to think of others maybe um maybe rat catchers yellows by hmm. charlie jane anders as well yeah, I guess I'll just say one more thing about Three Bodies at Mitanni that occurs to me is that one of the people on the ship argues, you know, like like basically the issue is we could wipe out these people without consciousness, but then what if they can what if they're fit to survive in the universe and we're not? Would it be better to have no 
life at all, no human life at all in the universe, or wouldn't it be better to have human life with no consciousness? And, and you know, w- but would it actually be? I mean, that's a really interesting question. I don't know. I just mm. love that story. But I don't know, John, do you have anything you want to say about empathy or any of things we've been talking about? Uh, I, I didn't want to really add anything about that particular, but I was going to say about Three Bodies and Mitani, uh, one thing that I really was uh, pleased with is that that's like such a core hard SF story. I mean, it appeared in Analog originally, so it's like uh, just the fact that it was in, that I found this, that we found the story in Analog, that was cool, that ended up in the book, because like with this book being so uh, geared towards sort of like literary crossover, um, I'm just really, I'm really glad anytime we can find something that, that, that does meet all those, like push all those buttons, like you were saying, Davey, you know, it's like, oh, this is like everything that in the science fiction story that you want right and so it's like yeah it's like that's the kind of thing that i grew up reading that like i would always be looking for um and uh the the fact that uh that that you know that it was published and i and i found it and liked it and and then karen also liked it and we have it in the book i I think that's cool because i i I would love to see what uh, a literary reader who sort of stumbles upon this book because of the best american brand I, i would love to see what they think of that story you know um because I, I was imagining, like when Karen was talking about the Left Hand of Darkness, like you can you can imagine someone picking up that book and that being like, I mean, especially back in the in the seventies or eighties or whatever, it's like you can imagine someone picking up that book and it's like that literally being the first time they've ever encountered the concept of a non-binary gender, you know, um, and, and that kind of thing. And it's like, can you imagine like how much your mind is blown by encountering concepts like that? And so, like, I think like a literary reader who comes to to um, a book like this and and you just encounter something like Three Bodies in Mitanni, I kind of wonder what that will do to their brain. I mean, not not not, not that it's on necessarily on the same level as Left Hand of Darkness, but um, you know, I I kind of wonder what that will do to 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 such readers. Yeah, if anyone out there has any literary readers, give them that story. I'd be curious to know what they think of it. <laughs> um. Uh, I will say, I will say about empathy, um, you know, uh, you guys mentioned, uh, Rock Catcher's Yellows by Charlie Jane Anders. Um, and, uh, I, I really love that story as well. I mean, I, I originally published it also. It was in Press Start to Play, my, uh, video game anthology. And of course I had a, a grandparent, my grandfather, uh, had, uh, dementia and in the story sort of deals with dementia. Um, it's like a, a video game, uh, is created that it allows people with dementia to sort of, you know, try to, uh, make some, uh, quality of life improvements uh, via the video game, um, and uh, you know, I, I love I love reading stories that that deal with that sort of subject matter that that can try to, you know, try to imagine some uh, some some procedures or or methods or whatever that can help people with dementia because uh, you know having having taken like I I not only had my grandfather who had dementia but I mean like I actually lived with him and took care of him for several years so uh, so I got to see it up close and personal um you know so so yeah so obviously uh, I I I the the empathy in that story really resonated with me. Could you talk? Could you guys talk about? Did any of the author's notes strike you? Because I thought there was some pretty interesting stuff in the author's notes. I mean, one thing that really jumped out at me is uh, Maria Devana Headley talks about getting this eight-foot-long taxidermied crocodile <laughs> in her author's note. I don't know. Do you, do you, do you know her, John? I, th- I, I have you ever heard of this yeah. this taxidermied crocodile in her <laughs> New York City apartment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, 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 I've only met her a couple times in person, you know, but I mean, I published a ton of her stories, um, and I follow her on Twitter. So like, I, like, I, I saw her talking about the, the crocodile thing on Twitter when she got it or whatever. Um, so I remembered that, but, uh, I think it's funny that it ended up 
like inspiring stories and, you know, to the extent that she's talking about it in her author's note or whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know much about it otherwise, but, um, I mean, whatever it says in the author's note is probably the extent of my knowledge, but, um, but yeah, no, I thought, did you have any responses though, as, as the author's notes were coming in, did you think any of them were like, Oh, that's interesting or that's weird or anything like that? I guess it was a while ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not really fresh in my mind. I, I thought it was interesting. Adam Johnson didn't want to say anything. Um, like he didn't want to comment on the story at all. Um, and, uh, I think it's, it was like a really personal story for him. So I, th I, I sort of suspect that that's why he didn't want to say anything, but, um, uh, so, I mean, that one by the virtue of the fact that he had literally said nothing, I thought was kind of interesting, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think, I think they were all generally, uh, interesting in one way or another, but, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't have said that anything, uh, really jumped out at me in particular. I thought it was interesting in that story where it's about an author who's mobbed by attractive young women after winning a Pulitzer. And then I looked, read his bio, and it said he won a Pulitzer. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, like he, his wife, like, literally did have cancer. So it's like, it's a very, like, autobiographical story, um, except for the ghost part, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I like I said, I, I think that's why he didn't want to say anything because it was so personal. Yeah. But, I don't, Karen, did any of the author's notes or anything about the, the sort of stuff around I any know, of the stories? I... I haven't seen the author's notes. Um, oh, oh. Can't, can't answer that question. Yeah, so I, I, I guess she hasn't gotten uh, her contributor copy yet, and uh, and yeah, there's no reason that she would have seen them ahead of time because uh, that all goes through me. Um, I will say, uh, as far as uh, sort of extraneous material, like you know, so like the author's notes in the back, and um, there's also the notable stories list, uh, which is uh, uh, the 60 stories that didn't make it into the book. So, you know, I give Karen 80 stories and she picks the best 20. And then the rest of the, the remaining 60 stories are listed in the back of the book as the notable stories of 2015. Um, and so I, I just wanted to say, like, uh, I was really uh, speaking of Maria Devana Headley. I was really glad she ended up in the book this time because I think she actually has the most stories uh, listed in the notable stories between the two volumes. Um, like, I think she had four stories in the notable story list uh, this year, and then she had a bunch last year, too. So, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of hers. I, I publish a ton of her of her uh, fiction, but then also just, you know, the stuff that she publishes elsewhere is usually great too. So, um, yeah, I was really glad to see her represented after Like, so it's like kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the Susan Lucci of, of, <laughs> of American science fiction fantasy. It's like, Oh, you finally you know, got, got a story. In there. I mean, admittedly there's only two volumes so far, but still, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of, uh, near misses that she had there. <laughs> well, she, she's 13 mercies, right? Yeah. The, the 13, yeah. I thought that was an amazing story. Well deserved. Her place in the <laughs> book is well deserved. Um, I guess one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Karen, is you say in your intro that it was your uncle, right? He says, "I never want my mind overwhelmed with someone else's minds." <laughs> Could you tell that? Story? Yes. Well, this is this is an uncle I hadn't heard from for quite a while. He and my aunt actually divorced many years ago, so he kind of um, has has not been really part of my life. Um, for many years, really, um, the whole time I've been a publishing writer, he, I've, I've not heard from him or much about him. But with the last novel I published, he wrote me a letter and, um, just, just to talk about the novel and how he felt about it and what he'd seen. And, and he, but it, it contained to me this very peculiar, uh, kind of, um, position uh, that he, 
he said in general he doesn't read novels because he doesn't want to have his mind overwhelmed by somebody else's mind. And I was just so struck by that that statement because I thought, you know, and that's that's the part I like the best. That's the whole point is, <laughs> is uh, that you get to sink into somebody else's mind. I think it also, you know, is one of the reasons that I love fantasy and science fiction is that um, is that I'm so aware of someone else's mind when I'm reading them. You know, when it's a realist story, um, you you can focus on the characters and you can focus on the situation and you can follow what's happening to them. But when it's a science fiction or a fantasy story, the author is bringing so much imagination and, um, uh, you know, taking you someplace absolutely unfamiliar. And so that, that sense of seeing the world the way somebody else sees it, uh, and seeing the possibilities that somebody else imagines is, uh, it's just thrown into higher relief for me. And, and, and it's one of the things that I love that, that I am just so firmly in somebody else's imagination, seeing things and thinking things I would never have been able to come up with for myself. Well, and speaking of empathy, right, there's been all this research that's come out recently saying that reading fiction increases your empathy. Yes, I think, uh, you know, I, I have come to believe very strongly that that is the whole project of literature is to expand our empathy beyond, um, beyond people we see as like ourselves, where it's very easy to be empathetic into, you know, into realms where we're dealing with people whose ways of thinking and ways of behaving um, are, are less familiar to us and therefore less easy to understand. Um, that, that books are, books are the way that you learn to care about people and things and creatures who are not like you. Yeah, and parrots and fungus and... <laughs> Absolutely. Fungus are very smart, incidentally. I will just say that. Um, as a system, they're a very smart system. Well, right, she says in the book about that they can solve mazes and things like that? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know any... I'm curious. I never... I didn't know that, so I'll have to look up more about that. Um, I also wanted to ask you, Karen, you know, I just watched the, the Jane Austen book club this afternoon and I appreciated the fact that the, uh, Hugh Dancy character is always trying to get, uh, Maria Bello to read Ursula K. Le Guin. I was <laughs> wondering if has, uh, do you think a lot of people watch that movie and go check out Ursula K. Le Guin? I would love to think so. I've got no evidence one way or the other, except that, um, I do know that Hugh Dancy himself began reading Ursula Le Guin when he was um, playing that part. Oh, so great. I'm set. I'm settling for that. That's good enough. <laughs> uh, speaking of Jane Austen Book Club, uh, you know there was one story that uh, we couldn't actually consider this year because the author was not American. But uh, I published a story in Lightspeed called the Karen Joy Fowler Book Club. Oh, so yeah. I just thought that was am- I just thought that was amusing because uh, you know earlier you were talking about how you uh, enjoy how stories like comment on each other and that kind of thing, and so it's like uh, okay, well there's a case of uh, actually commenting on on your story and you <laughs> at the same time. That was thrilling. Uh, I love that story. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. Um, yeah, unfortunately, the author is Australian, so we couldn't uh, consider her for this. But uh, I think it did get reprinted in a different year's best, so so that was nice. Hmm. I also just wanted to mention one of the stories that I really liked in here was called Lightning Jack's Last Ride by Dale Bailey. Um, but there's a line in here, John, I think might cause you some trouble. He mentions how uh, this post-apocalyptic world was created by the NRA uh, blowing up D.C. Oh. with a dirty bomb. I, expect, uh-huh. I suspect you might be getting some angry... Uh, Angry letters about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Uh, you know, that's funny. That that story, like, I, I also love that story. And, and that was one of those where I actually, like, remember the experience of reading it. Uh, maybe it's just because I was sort of reading it in a weird way. But um, I was... Uh, I was actually playing uh, the video game Skyrim, um, and the load times when you zone in, when you go between zones, was so long that I was like getting so bored that I was like, okay, well, I might as well like do some reading while I'm doing that. And so I actually like read that story like in between, you know, zoning and and during the game. Um, And it's like it's kind of a sad state of affairs that the zoning takes so long that I can actually make some progress reading a story (laughs) the time I have to wait. But uh, no, that's a good. It's a good thing. We need more zoning time in video yeah. games to get people <laughs> to read more. Right, right, right. Well, it, it would have been more perfect if I was playing Fallout. Yeah, uh, you know, that story is like you know that would have made more sense with that story. But Skyrim is what I was playing. So, hmm. um, all right, cool. So we're pretty much out of time. I did want to ask you, John. You mentioned uh, you mentioned last time we talked to you that uh, you had gotten a contract for two of these best American science fiction and fantasy volumes. Uh, yep. Do you have? What's the future of this series uh, looking like right now? Yeah, so we, uh, you know, we initially did two volumes in the first contract, and then we did sign a new contract to have volumes three and four. So it's definitely going to exist until volumes three and four. So that's the 2017 and 2018 volumes. Um, and then we'll we'll wait and see what happens after that. I, I expect it'll keep going. I mean, it seems like the it seems like HMH is really behind it, and and we're you know, doing pretty well so far. Uh, obviously, we'll we'll see more after this volume comes out and see see how it does. Um, but uh, we did actually, we just lined up our guest editors for 2017, 2018. I can't actually announce who they are yet because we haven't. Um, we haven't made we haven't made that announcement yet. But we did just line them up, so I'm very excited about that. Um, and uh, I was actually also really excited that we were able to line up the 2018 person now because usually. Uh, HMH waits until um, very late in the year. Like, I, I don't remember when we lined you up, Karen, but, um, like, you know, we were just lining up the 2017 one, like, this uh, this or in September. Um, and uh, and so usually it's, like, it's kind of at the last minute. And uh, I was finally like, you know, hey, guys, you know what? It's like we want to get we want to get these, like, big fancy people to be guest editors. It's like they need more time to make this decision. It's like it's, yeah, it's like, you know, it's reading 80 stories and writing an introduction, but I mean, these people are busy. They have lots of things to do. Like, you know, can we get a little bit more lead time? So, um, uh, I think people will be very excited when we do announce who they are. Um, I'm pretty excited about it. So, um, yeah, I'm yeah. just warning you that, uh, we're going to be having dinner together in a couple of days before we do the Kepler's event. And I'm going to be plying you with wine. And, uh, <laughs> uh, by the end of the evening, I'm going to expect to know the names of these editors. <laughs> yeah, John, you can just tell us. No one listens to this podcast anyway. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, the joke's on you though, because I don't actually drink, so that doesn't work on <laughs> 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 All uh, right, I'll be but, I'll uh... be plying me with wine. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I might be able to whisper it to you uh, on the you know with with secrecy uh, with, with sworn secrecy, but uh, yeah, I can't announce it on the podcast alas. All right, cool. Yeah, so uh, so I think we're pretty much out of time. So um, I don't know, Karen, do you have any final thoughts? Anything else you wanted to mention? Just uh, 
really enjoyed the the whole process. And uh, again, you know, I, I think the stories in the collection are incredible, each and every one of them. So I I hope it finds a, an audience that feels the same. And John, final thoughts? Uh, I'll just add that if anybody wants to learn more about it, you can just go to johnjosephadams.com slash best-american, um, and you can you know, see all the table of contents for both volumes. You can learn about uh, the different authors. You can see, um, you can read the introductions to both volumes and stuff like that. So uh, you can take a look. And it also has links to where you can buy the different volumes. Hmm. All right, great. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams and Karen Joy Fowler. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams and Karen Joy Fowler for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Penguin Random House for sponsoring today's show. Check out the new book Spaceman, an astronaut's unlikely journey to unlock the secrets of the universe over at MikeMassimino.com. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at Patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geekskyshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley.